Welcome to Film Fight Club with my second favorite Film Fight Club introduction of all time. This is Glenn Falcon with Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Wow, that's some tough uh, competition that you've just slandered, Glenn. Well, you've okay, slammed was... some of some cla- all-time classics like The Danger Zone. That was pretty good. The Elton John one with Rocket Man and Nicolas Cage and The Rock was pretty up there. But this is this is a special special episode, Chris. We'll see. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru as well. Hello, Virat. Well, from an actual Leo, a lion lover, to another lion lover, hello. I've been very excited to talk about the song and uh, this because my, all my interests are coming together for this one piece because we are talking about the new Rachel McAdams movie, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. I'm so glad we introduced it as a new Rachel McAdams movie. I would say that it's a slightly misleading, uh, and sadly so, a misleading way of introducing the film, but we'll get to that later. No, I think it's fair. I think she needs to get top billing, and we. Oh, she does. But she also needs to be given. She does, but she also needs to be given roles worthy of top billing, which I don't think this is. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. 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 Speaking of Netflix films, we're going to be talking about the new documentary Athlete A later in the program. Both these films premiered on Netflix this week. First, just a bit of an update as to what's happening about town. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, as of today, is screening online and streaming nationally. The Jewish International Film Festival is having their second over several streaming events on Thursday night. You can watch the film on Ritz at home and tune in and listen to the Q&A. Static Vision are continuing in their weekly series, now their 13th of online film nights on Friday night, as is MonsterFest. Seven Queensland film festivals are getting together for a Screensland event. They are the Brisbane Queer Film Festival, Brisbane International Film Festival, Backyard Film Festival, Vision Splendid, Port Shorts, and the Gold Coast Film Festival. And they're joining together for a big event on July 3rd, um, as is Tilda Melbourne, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, which is having a film screening on the 3rd of July. Additionally, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Brisbane Queer Film Festival and Queer Screen Mardi Gras Film Festival are coming together for a special event on the 4th of July. And the Environmental Film Festival is screening uh, for a couple of nights from next week, July 7th. So there's a fair amount of streaming events going on, as well as cinemas, which are open as of today. Yeah, happy, happy re-movie going uh, day for everyone who's not in Victoria. Yeah, we're... We haven't been to a cinema yet. We are pre-recording this on the Tuesday, so we will be getting to them soon. And yeah, we be, with social distancing measures in place. Yeah, I, I personally am comfortable with it, but I completely respect the feeling of anyone who, as much as we like to promote cinemas, who feels that it's too soon and doesn't feel comfortable being in that environment. Yeah, I'm definitely say. one of those people. So I'm, I'm glad that it's Netflix week because yeah. there was like a screening happening. Every, everyone will feel separately, yeah. differently about this, you know, um, but um, I don't want to be just like unambiguously promoting it because I, uh, I know some people are raising issues and we'll see what comes to pass. Personally, I, I'm okay with it and I do want cinemas to survive. You know, I do want to be out there providing support. I'm personally okay with it. And I think the first thing I'm going to go to is the uh, Alliance Francais French Film Festival. The last thing I went to before cinemas closed, excepting Parasite, and a few of the films I wanted to see, I didn't get to see, they're redoing it. So I'm going to go head along to Palace Verona, so the local Palace Cinemas, and check that out. The other thing I wanted to check out, um, Chris, I'm, I, I would have owed you some money had I actually put down a bet 
but Tenet has been delayed. Yeah, that's right. I was going to bring it out. I thought there's no way with the rising COVID-19 cases in many parts of the world. Europe, we're focusing mostly on the USA, but Europe is also seeing reinfection rates as lockdowns are being uh, released. So what uh, is Mul- the new date now? August 12th or 19th or something. Yeah. I think August 12th. Just in time for my August. birthday. Yeah, not, not too bad. Both your yeah, birthdays. It, but yeah, um, but uh, I reckon it's going to be delayed again. I mean, who knows when it'll come out. Mulan is also now delayed till just after Tenet, end of August. Yeah, I think August 31st. Imagine if No Time to Die becomes the first movie to be released, if anything, in November. It could happen. Entirely possible. They could have timed it very well. Um, mm. Additionally, an update or non-update as it is on a story we covered last week, the Sydney Film Festival included, and to some controversy, as the festival director, per his statement, Nashan Moodley, they respected a filmmaker's decision being Eliza Scanlon's to edit a film that she produced and that won the best director award at the initial film awards, Mukbang, following the awards ceremony and following its submission to the festival without any notification as to the films having been edited. Scanlon certainly has acknowledged this in Instagram. She said the decision was rash and that it was wrong. Um, we thought this point that we expected that Sydney Film Festival would say something addressing this specifically, but there has been no further update in the story since we last spoke. And we do think it is incumbent on Sydney Film Festival to address this and acknowledge that it was indeed wrong to edit the film and following its submission to the festival and furthermore having won a major award. Especially because to that effect. Especially because their previous statement was simply saying that they were respecting the filmmaker's wishes. Um, I don't think it ends with that. Firstly, as you say, the filmmaker has since acknowledged his mistake. And secondly, the film festival, despite wanting to be on the side of filmmakers, has the ultimate editorial and curatorial position. And they have the final say. Yeah. They have the final say. It's on them, I think, when there's a question that crosses lines about censorship like this to make the right decision, um, regardless of what the filmmaker said, thinks, honestly. And I, I, I can understand wanting to respect her beliefs. I think... It's fine time, especially now that she's admitted that it was, she rashly made a mistake, to admit that they also made a mistake acting rashly and that this shouldn't happen again. Because as and you say... And it's happened before, honestly. I don't, that, yeah, exactly. Possibly, I don't think this has ever happened. Yeah, as, as, as you were saying, it's pretty unprecedented for film festivals to try and hide the work they've screened when controversy hits. It's a pretty embarrassing precedent. So I think it, given that it's such an unusual event, it should be made clear that this was a mistake and it won't happen again. Definitely. I think it's a question about taking responsibility. And I think as, as a film festival, it's not about making a mistake or whatever, you know, and that happens. And that's not the point. It's about what happens next and how we can basically ensure that this doesn't happen in the future and what we can learn from that. And I think as a film festival, taking responsibility and basically acknowledging your part in that process would go a long way to ensure that future filmmakers are also basically, they have that peace of mind. That and future work. audiences. Yeah, and that, that, that work is sacrosanct. Yeah. The future filmmakers submit to the festival and the filmmakers who were are both submitted and were in contention for awards this year. That's correct. Moving on, we want to talk about Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. We missed Eurovision this year and in a spectacular piece of foresight the effective winner of this year's not real non-tournament was in fact iceland and this is set in iceland so may have been by chance but well done 
all involved? The timing's interesting. Would this film have come out a bit longer, a bit earlier ago, had there been a Eurovision Song Contest this year, but they've delayed it to now because there's no Eurovision? Like, here's your substitute? Entirely possible. If Irrespective. Been, yeah. I, I think it's a perfect film for Netflix because something people can discover at their will. It's something I get together with friends every year watch Eurovision and I can more easily do that as it's on Netflix. It's a good movie for this. Also because it has a niche audience we'll go on to discuss and doesn't have, weren't necessarily the general impact. It would have had it been released in a cinema. It's good on this platform, any other streaming platform. I mean, that was my first question, actually. I mean, Glenn, you aside, because you're a complete freak. And you He's a massive Eurovision, Eurovision tragic. I mean, that's one way to put it. I call it a freak. But anyway, you get your I'll own band that. together of friends and, you know, you do your own overnight. 5 a.m. Yeah. Every year. I joined Glenn for that once just because I thought I've got, you know, got to do it. Got to, got to see what the real, the real 5 a.m. Eurovision. But, but, but that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> so good. Israel won that year. Netta, who has an appearance in this movie. Beyond, beyond that, like, 1% of people on the planet. Who is this movie targeted towards? I okay. I, I, I strongly disagree. I think what this movie is actually targeted to is Americans to try and sell them on the Eurovision Song Contest. It's an ad, right? The, I, the film, it's called, the film, it, it, it's called Eurovision Song Contest, not some catchy name like Blades of Glory, Talladega Nights. It's just, this is, Euro, this is Eurovision Song Contest. Like, don't forget it. And we're using the logo of the Song Contest as the logo of the film. And I want to get into that. That's actually my major criticism. I did enjoy this film, moreover for being just a absolute, and I'll, I'll own it, Eurovision tragic. It's it listens to Eurovision unironically throughout the year. I think they are splitting hairs between making an ad to try and uh, get the American audience on board by using things like Will Ferrell and Black Eyed Peas songs in sing-alongs that to get people who wouldn't necessarily be into Eurovision on board using Netflix as the way to distribute it worldwide. And it also has fan service for Eurovision fans, like the way that they've captured quite well, as we'll get into the aesthetics and the sounds of Eurovision music, as well as appearances from previous winners. But I view those mostly as being fan service and the number one goal of this, as opposed to being for the people who just be watching the festival anyway, being a promo tool. I guess it serves all the purposes. It could get some Eurovision tragic subscribing to Netflix as well. Before we continue, and I really want to get into this, we want to give a bit of a synopsis as to, first of all, what the Eurovision Song Contest is and what the film is. Eurovision, for those uninitiated, is a now 60-year-old annual song competition where European nations and some non-European nations, including Australia, come together for a kitschy, shameless, beautiful night of, uh, of songs and music, all original songs, all three minutes long, and it's a great deal of fun. Australia's been at it for the past five years now. This film is set around an Icelandic duo played by Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, who we're constantly reminded of, may or may not, but probably aren't siblings, and their lifelong dream to be competitive in the Eurovision Song Contest on behalf of Iceland. And it's their journey from their humble, small hometown to the competition in Edinburgh, which is a joke in and of itself. Now, I have a lot of things I liked about this film. I do think it's very endearing for reasons I'll get into for Eurovision fans and whether you're casual, dedicated, but I have a fundamental problem with this film and Chris has alluded to it um, in great respect. The executive producer of this, one of the executive producers is John Olesand, who's also one of the executive producers of the Eurovision Song Contest and appears in every Eurovision as he did in this film. It's so nakedly, and yes, part of it is that they wanted to get the licensing. Part of it is they wanted to get some of the songs and cooperation, but it, a parody as affectionate as one can be simply is not as good when everyone is in on the joke. As an analogy, 
Team America where they Trey Parker met and said, you can't, uh, no Alec Baldwin, you can't um, be in on this joke. And look, compare Zoolander 1 versus Zoolander 2 where all the fashion icons rocked up for Zoolander 2 and just wasn't as funny. When they're in on it and involved and so stand to profit from it, and yes, to the extent it is to raise awareness of it, it simply can't have the same joint impact as a film like Blades of Glory, which is actually very underrated. I liked it a lot. I don't know this. But my thinking is that it's more than what you're saying, Glenn, that this film probably was a commissioned thing. Like, let's do a Will Ferrell, e.g. Talladega Nights type movie about Eurovision. And it rolled from there, as opposed to the passion to make a movie about Eurovision. Because I think if you were passionate about making a movie about Eurovision, you would have found more inspiration than there is in this film. Can I say just the idea about a wild Will Ferrell or, or type comedy about Eurovision could mine some hilarious absurdities. And this film is so, so it's tongue in cheek. I'm not saying that you have to slam Eurovision or be brutal or savage or anything. I'm just saying there is some weird, funny stuff that happens that they could have delved deep into for some really hilarious satire. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie is about promoting the, the competition first and foremost. So as you say, kid gloves. It's a light parody and granted, it's, you're, it's already heavily exaggerated, but they could have gone further. I think it's it's the other way around. I I don't think it's a parody in any sense. In fact, it is it is almost too much of a what's that word? Hagiography, in in that sense, where it is looking at its subject with such reverence that mm. they're not interested in parody as much. In fact, the things that they're looking to parody are mostly American culture, and and the jabs are actually not at your vision, but how people look at Eurovision. So it's mostly those are the people who are targets, the people who look down at Eurovision and the people who usually are condescending towards it. Those are the people who are, need to basically learn a lesson about its greatness. Okay. So okay. if anything else, it's mostly placing that song contest on a pedestal and realizing how amazing it is. I, I want to make clear, I don't think this, this thing takes Eurovision seriously. It's still light and tongue in cheek, but it is a tribute. Yeah, it's very First and foremost. We'll talk more about the performances in a little bit, but there's a, a th- three things there. There's a tonal distinction between taking Eurovision as all as a joke and taking it seriously enough, which is mirrored in some of the performances. The better performances take it seriously enough, some absolutely take the piss. Will Ferrell is very bad to the spec because he can't, all he does is stand there, look and say, hi, look at me, I'm funny, I'm Will Ferrell. McAdams, who's always incredible, gets the balance just right. On the matter of the Americans, the film had to acknowledge to some extent this is Americans and North Americans taking the piss out of Eurovision. And some of the stuff with the band of Americans who rock up, that's actually some of the best writing because, yes, it is skewering how people see Europe. There's a great line about how Europe has no speed limit, as an example. And every line where they deal with the Americans is very very funny again great scripting throughout regarding those scenes on the matter of where that your point that it's not a parody of eurovision i disagree i look at some of the songs the entries from belarus the entries from sweden which is this a uh, faux rap gangster thing and it's it is slightly exaggerated even above and beyond eurovision levels um the one that's taken the piss out of lordy the finnish band that won several years ago and they were dressed as um orcs effectively and it is yeah yes it is actually dialing up a few notches and i can't ruin it but the semi-final where a particular very big event happens it makes best use of one infamously hilarious eurovision plot prop but then takes it even further so i do think it is an effective parody in that regard even i would barely nearly as far as they could have i would call it way more a tribute than a parody to yeah, be honest for me exactly. this stuff as a as someone who's not as big a eurovision fan as you obviously 
But from my perspective, when I see it as in the Eurovision performances, those slightly skewed for comedy is pretty much what they are like. There's always a weird, embarrassing Euro yeah. hip hop thing. Um, the fact is, there's always weird entrances I'm, and costumes and themes and gimmicks. It's not that exaggerated. They are, they're exaggerating enough. It's, but a, I'm, it's, I'm saying it's a light parody. Imagine if this like a parody. It's so it's so such a missed opportunity. Like I, I know you, the, this isn't necessarily what they were going for, but the humor outside of this is so broad, right? Like the dialogue, the banter, and some of the things that happen in the plot are super, super broad. As if this were a movie like Zoolander. But imagine if this movie treated the Eurovision Song Contest like Zoolander treats modeling. You know, oh. Eurovision deserves in a really broad comedy a wild, unhinged parody, I think. And you know how this would have actually, could have actually been better? If they hadn't got the licensing rights and the same audience would have rocked up, the same winners from Eurovision Pass would have come up and been a part of the joke, called it something like Eurosong Tasia yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 definitely. And they could have gone so much yeah, further and had a great time and everyone who needed to get it and would otherwise have got it and got this would have got it and totally been on board. Hmm. I did like it for what it was. Otherwise... If, if it was going to be only slightly exaggerated from Eurovision to be totally cohesive with that, the rest of the film should have been like a Christopher Guest documentary, like a slightly tongue in cheek mockumentary about behind the scenes of Eurovision. I would have been down with that. But as it is, you expect something much greater because it's like visitations from dead people and, and elves and such like that. Like it's yeah. so broad. You're right, Chris, because uh, when you're talking about a mockumentary style or, you know, uh, that kind of a thing, the, the parts of the film that work best for me, for example, the sing-along sequence, are, are, the, are the moments where the film is actually taking itself seriously and you can actually see the magic of Eurovision and the, basically the strength of all performers and, the, and the, the actual guests who've been ex-Eurovision performers really shining. So it's in those sequences where the film actually strikes the right balance. And I was wondering whether, like, if it's going to be affectionate, Really, actually, milk the affection. I hated that scene, though. Of, because it, on, uh, okay, on that scene, on the matter of the seriousness, I think the best bits like are when it takes Eurovision seriously, including um, the final song that is sung, which speaks to the sincerity and actual ethos of the competition. On that sequence, the song along, I liked bad. it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give a good and bad, an ugly, good, bad, and the ugly review. I liked that there were all these famous performers in it i liked that it was fun and i could sing along to it as it would otherwise a eurovision song but why okay of all there are dozens hundreds of amazing eurovision songs why do share why do the black eyed piece waterloo yes because it is actually a eurovision song i'll tell you why when you have this opportunity to put in uh, you have are, the in there. i'll tell you what fairy tale put in any number of songs no, there's a reason glenn it's calculated and it's by design and it's the number one reason why i just said bad about that scene it's because the scene is designed to get people who aren't into eurovision to get excited about the idea of all these people singing pop songs and so it's, it's and not for the, the tragics it's like here's a bunch of here's the black eyed peas and that's the moment where the this is a funny parody goes away and it crosses into this is like a strange slick music video tainted by corporate marketing pick black eyed peas because you generic americans like i got a feeling just like you like will ferrell comedies and i, I could just see all of the calculation behind it and it just no, i um, i didn't it. think it'd go in that direction because the preceding scene involved a cameo from a previous Eurovision winner and one of the very best and 
most mm. affectionate songs to ever play at Eurovision. But, that was lovely. And then it went into this. ABBA comes in because it's like, here's the ABBA's thing fair game. It's Waterloo. You, I know. I know. It's, it's part of Eurovision legend, but it's also like, here's the bit that you Americans will know. And we really want to remind you this thing you like, Eurovision. Like, just, just so you know. Oh, but it could but have done. Were, but you're right. The, these were all the songs that debuted on on the U.S. music charts. It was just a bunch of generic songs for you for generic Americans who who. Oh God. Uh, okay, you've ruined the scene for me. Thank you, Chris. Bye. But of generic Americana, Will Ferrell. This movie really bad, dude. I I okay. We're heading towards my main kind of criticism of it here. But for me, the the issue was that this movie is generic, down to like it's a generic Will Ferrell comedy, like. It's and with a generic template. And it's just such a Netflix movie. Like, have you noticed you get something interesting like like Spike Lee's film last week um, or various other auteur productions they've invested in. But most of the time, a Netflix movie, it's like a theatrical movie, except the standards are all just a bit lower. Like even down to the title, the fact that they called this movie Eurovision Song Contest, the story of the thing that the movie's about. No, it's, no one it's, spent more than five minutes thinking about that time. It feels like the Netflix movie has become the new Hallmark TV movie or whatever. You know, just everything is... But it's just like standard. script yeah. Script isn't good enough. The editing is sloppy. Like, it just feels rushed compared to a regular movie. Like, this movie, for some reason, is two hours, which features not one, but two um, of the moments in every rom-com and of... The lovers are separated and, and uh, have a dispute, and then the lovers come back together. And it wasn't fun the first time. It then happens again. Like yep. surely this could have been condensed. Right. As an aside on that, for a movie about Eurovision, uh, it has quite conservative attitudes to sex. I was thinking odd. that it's, which is another. I was totally thinking about that. And you know what? That was another thing that made me think this is for Americans as opposed to Eurovision tragics. First of all, it's flattering Americans' perspectives. Right. I, that, that that's one hundred percent what occurred to me actually about the whole thing. It was Wait, like it reminded me of the Rock of Ages. Sure, the Americans. Um, on this being generic, like what it is generic, and there are many vignettes and elements that are far from. Will Ferrell, God, he's on autopilot for the entire film. I don't like Talladega Nights. Um, I don't, I do like Blades of Glory, but we're seeing a regurgitation of this. He's taking some of the greatest hits from his other movies. There's an old school reference, which is actually quite funny, but the whole dynamic between him and his father is just the shtick from another film he made, Zoolander, um, where Ben Stiller's character, Zoolander, is obviously trying to endear himself to John Voight character. Here it's play, he's played by Pierce Brosnan. He's having a fair bit of fun. But Will Ferrell is just, I'm Will Ferrell. You're going to like me because you liked me in Anchorman. And everyone else is trying a lot he's not in this movie. He's not really trying. He's not really, he's not funny. He doesn't have a funny physical presence in this at all. And drags this is, a lot of it down, yeah. As an aside, he looks really old in this movie. Did you notice that? Like he suddenly. I, looks I found old the, and he I looks found the pairing of McAdams and Will, Will Ferrell really troubling. It was so yeah. obviously just you know jolly. massive a, massive age yeah. gap. Oh, also, God, for the record, yeah. Pierce Brosnan is fifteen years older than Will Ferrell. Right, Pierce Brosnan. He looks Pierce great. Bro- Pierce Brosnan was great in this. Yeah, but um, I think there were some things that were funny, like some of the jokes about Americans, some of the lines here and there, some of the Eurovision in jokes were funny, but for the most part, I didn't find this funny. I found the the writing lazy. I'll give you an example. The way that the band Fire Saga are selected as Iceland's entry for Eurovision, I predicted that five minutes before it happened. This never brought up again. It's it's, Um, Yeah, not not brought up again. But the, the way that that happened, 
it's such a familiar type of joke from generic American comedies of the last 15 to 20 years that I saw exactly that hap- happening. It was just, oh, here it is. Okay. But yeah, it did enjoy the meta hark backs as regards the ghost, but it was a bit of a lazy scripting compared to the otherwise good scripting of say the, how the, the last Atlantic broadcasting corporation were handled. That was a bunch of hipsters and hilarious villain was just some government stooge. We couldn't, didn't think Iceland could afford Eurovision. That was funny. More scripting needed like that and less like how they actually got into the competition. Yeah. I do think the funniest stuff in here is showing the, the Icelandic you know, TV association. <laughs> you can't afford it. it. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. This guy, it, it's basically Kenneth Brown from The Boat That Rocked and a bunch of hipsters who are like, yeah, yeah, we, we love Eurovision. Yeah, we yeah, need yeah, yeah. that. And um, on that, on those hipsters, there's a couple of things that <laughs> it absolutely those. nails about the competition. And that's the desire yeah. by so many, like myself, from myself included, to see people sing in indigenous languages. It's wonderful when they do. The role that commentators invariably play and the biased role they often play. The right tone that McAdam strikes between utter flamboyance and self-seriousness. The role, and this is a little more serious subject, but... Uh, it's very well known that Eurovision is an incredibly queer-friendly event and has a very big queer following around the world. However, a lot of countries that participate have very poor records on human rights, including one... There were some nice shots at Russia that were well-earned. Very, yeah, that's what I I'm believe is what you're going to say. Um, yeah, yeah. So you, more than Russia, say about a country that we're not going to name because it's whatever. I was, getting, I was getting to Russia. Yeah, but you were not going to say Russia. Yes, oh. it was. Okay. You, call, you, you seriously calling me out in this? All right, let's. You want me, want me to say what I was going to say? Okay. Well, what I was going to what I was going to say was the Russian character played by Dan Stevens. Oh, so hilarious! Dan Stevens playing Russian, taking the piss out Alexander of Russia and the Russians. And this Alexander Lemtov, Russia has a very poor record on uh, on, on LGBT rights, as does Ukraine. As the several countries which participate routinely in Eurovision, and the fa- and they very directly acknowledge this in Eurovision. There's any number of countries who put up or act who go up and are very tongue in cheek in this regard. And this is something that is heightened and to an extent parodied by Lemtov's hilariously camp performance uh, for the song which we played earlier, which like the Greeks performance in this is very much, we're not going to outwardly say it, but this, uh, we, we know what we're getting at. Uh, this is speaking to a queer following in a queer community. And there's a point, a more dramatic point in the film where through Lemtov's character, they address that uh, countries, including Russia, have a very poor record and that, the, and that Eurovision can play and has played a strong role in, in empowering members of these communities around the world. The, the theming of his performance um, was very funny, was on point, exactly the kind of gimmicky thing you'd get from Eurovision. I was wondering when I heard the the songs um, whether they were written by people involved in Eurovision, which I spoke to you know Glenn before we started recording this, and he confirmed that yes they are, which doesn't surprise me because they're so on point. It's that is what Eurovision sounds like—the kind of generic Eurovision sound of the last ten years. Yeah, there's 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 the there's the campy stuff. There's the sincere ballad. There's a great bit where Gray Norton says San Marino is crying for no reason. And then there's the songs about where you come from. There's the romantic ballads. It hits all those beats. It just hits the melding of the musical styles, outlandish costumes. The Russian song also has um, Spanish flamenco influence. And that's what makes Eurovision great. Novelty props, 
a melding of styles and um, outlandish, hitting outlandish notes. And this gets all that. This, this is clearly written by people who know Eurovision intimately and deeply love it. Many of whom, as we acknowledged, may actually be actively involved in the competition itself. The music album or, is great. But... Given that the, it's written by Will Ferrell and a collaborator. Adam, Adam McKay. No, not Adam so, McKay. So he didn't write no, it, no. excuse me. He he's, he's an executive producer. Yeah. But um, I'm guessing that, I, I don't know who his collaborative writer on this, but I reckon and someone said you must include these name. things. I reckon yeah. there's a lot of committee oversight going on in this. Yeah. On Dan Stevens, this is actually my favorite performance of him to date. He is has enormous range. He's also hilariously, look, Dan Stevens is one of the most British, British actors. He got his start as Major Crawley in Downton Abbey and him taking the Mickey out of, Britain's special role in the competition is pretty funny. Also, on a side note, the fact that this is set in Edinburgh is hilarious. First of all, Edinburgh, Scotland, aren't a participant in the competition. If um, Scottish, yeah, I was wondering about that. Through the UK, I think there's a couple of ways this could be going. One is that they're putting it, it, it it's, they're commenting that it's the most unlikely that England would win, would be if they did win, they'd relegate it to Scotland. But I think it's more just as subtly saying, we really want Scotland, A, to be independent, but B, consequentially, have a place in Eurovision because Scotland could be incredibly competitive. And many people have advocated for this over the years, Scotland to get a place. And I think this is a subtle jab at that. I was really surprised that we didn't get an Australia jab, given that Australia is not even part of Europe and often just is in Eurovision. Well, the way Australia was introduced to Eurovision five, five years ago. Yeah, we're relatively... Yeah, I, I accept that Australia went into this. We're, relative, we're relatively new in the, on the whole scene. Um, speaking to the performers, um, we did introduce this as the Rachel McAdams movie. Look, people seem constantly surprised that she's always good and always the best in show. She's so funny in this. Um, two of my favorite sequences with her, one is when she's negotiating with elves. But my actual favorite is when there's all these backup dancers she doesn't know about who in the middle of a performance, they just cost her and she doesn't know what to do. She's like, oh, yes, dancers here. She's so funny. Her comic timing is great. There's an earnestness to her as well as a incredible flamboyance in everything she does. Um, it's a hard mix to ha manage and she does it. She's, she's great. She's she always great. sing her own songs? I don't know. With the, I can hear some pretty heavy auto-tune on the soundtrack, so I'm yeah, going to but say it did, yes. It did sound like her voice, though. It did. Yeah, it would yeah. be her voice with a lot of digital but filters. But still, like, the vocals were hard. And, you know, I can't sing even like that, even after training, so I don't know. She but you're not a trained actress. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> I think the problem for me is there's a lot of things that, as a Eurovision tragic, you would appreciate about it. But I feel like even though there were things here and there that I thought, oh, that's funny, that's amusing. Overall, this was pretty bad. Like the length, the length is a major problem for me. This and it was, gets this so serious. Been... It goes from this really broad comedy to to being really leaden and serious as about the character drama stuff. And it's like, I don't care about Will Car Ferrell's character growth. I don't care about this guy who's barely bothered to bring the laughs in his own vehicle. Actually, as Lars, Will Ferrell and his character arc, where we're supposed to care about him and him <laughs> achieving his dream, I didn't. I was just like, you're, you're well, just an annoying... It's, 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 it's yeah. very generic, um, you know, follow your dreams. It doesn't get old, but it can get tired. I think it did a bit here. But if they but it had worked within the it, setting of Eurovision, the sincerity of Eurovision overall. But if they had treated that concept as just we know that you know that we don't really care about this. So we're just going to kind of do a tongue-in-cheek parody of sports movies or, you know, I must win the contest and 
that redemption arc redemption arc performance films then it would have been fine but it's just that it suddenly does this tonal shift of feeling like you want me to take it seriously and for me that was really jarring in such an otherwise dumb comic so dan stevens he's really really good in this all the songs are ones that you would typically hear and which would be successful in any eurovision year his line of love is that right, hilarious? It's the most range I've seen him had in any performance. I don't know if necessarily his best turn, but in terms of the range he does as Lemtov, it's very, very fun. His, his Russian accent is obviously deliberately outlandish. The actors in this, as discussed, are generally very good. Turning on to some of the other aspects of how this treats Eurovision and specifically the parody therein, um, one thing we, that no one, I don't think many people are going to talk about this regards to this film is the blocking and the camera work, when we go into the Eurovision performances themselves, it's treated very much like an actual Eurovision show. And even though it's clearly modern production design and better camera quality, it does does well to situate us in a Eurovision performance as we well, otherwise might not have been. Look, I think this is a very cheap looking movie like most Netflix movies. And the only thing scenes that make it seem like it has good production values are the Eurovision performance scenes, partly because, yeah, that's where the money shots are, but partly because I would say a lot of it actually was shot in Eurovision. Looking at some of the crowds, uh, I was thinking- It was part of was shot at the Israeli stadium, yeah. Right, and it was, I was just thinking these aren't CGI. I think there's one shot where they've panned over from um, people on stage performing to the crowd reacting. And I thought, oh, that's a clever match chart. They've got the real Eurovision audience and yeah. they've combined it with a uh, scene shot for this of the fictitious performers. Yeah. Um, so props are there, but otherwise I would say it's not a very good looking movie. Yeah. There's a lot of deep, yeah, it's exactly shot in many respects. There's a lot of deep affection for Eurovision, which bleeds into the film, which endears it, but also which are some of the jokes where they don't have to wink at the camera and tell you it's a joke. Um, two of the best line, there's one great line where someone runs out of looking for a cab and there are no cars on the road and they say, what's going on? Everyone's at home watching Eurovision and only real Eurovision fans would really love and appreciate something like that. There's also a great line where um, someone proclaims, they're awful, but they're our awful. And that's how a lot of Europe, who the Europeans who decide to turn into students of Eurovision that's generally how they feel. So it captures how the festival is perceived both internationally and internally. Which is it like no, the- actually, that's a genuine question I do have for fellow Eurovision tragics. Is it, do you guys feel it, it is somewhat like acceptable cringe or do Eurovision. you guys genuinely love it? No, look, I love it unironically, but um, as, as alludes on the show, apparently I have bad taste in music. So what do I know? Well, I'll, I'll say this. The Eurovision diehards I know are all quite nerdy. I'm not sure where that, where that <laughs> situates it, but I find that like, interesting to know. When I, was looking at just, if I say this at, as someone who's quite right. nerdy. So I'm, I'm just yeah. saying that nerds get into it. Is it because nerds are already apart from popular taste in some way? But, but it is weird, right? Because Eurovision is not like, it's not essentially gay culture, gay culture, but it is somewhat progressive, alternative. It's not the usual comic book, geek, nerd culture kind of crowd that would typically gravitate towards that. It is No, no, but, but there's a surprising the amount hipster. of crossover. Yeah, yeah, which is weird. It, it's because Eurovision more generally, I think it's people who um, like emphatic style music. I don't mean 80 style power chords. I mean blunt direct music people who like experimentation and melding of styles i just like many different types of styles i also like how fashion 
and iconography and art can be integrated within music. Certainly in the 80s, it was very popular. Less, um, in, it's, it can be semi-divorced from a lot of what we hear now. But in Eurovision, half the fun with the acts is seeing the falsetto Dracula uh, rise several feet from the stage with this amazing, the, the, cringy performance and red flowing notes. down. There could have been some real like Stonehenge from Spinal Tap type piss take yeah. musical numbers in this. I'm shocked that they didn't milk it more. But that's the thing. It's I a think comedy the about numbers. Numbers. The Lordy one was pretty on point. But the, these are basically blink and you miss it. Like I was expecting way more of a musical focus instead of yeah. this dumb drama about some, you know, incestuous love affair. <laughs> but he, but but he, they're he, probably not siblings. I know, they, I know but, but because it's so American, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that incest is... But that was also just such a stupid joke. It was oh, just... Oh, it was a dumb... Look, I'm not saying that incest is good or European or whatever when I say that it's so American to do this. But it's so American that just in case someone was taking it seriously and worried, they had to spell out towards the end that yeah. she definitely is not his... Uh, his but uh, but I think it, it that is nice because it's poking fun at what Americans think Europeans are like. Because, yeah, but that, you know, those are some think... of the best jokes in this movie. Yeah. Um, no, it's not, I love that Will Ferrell breaks his accent for one line where he says, no, damn it, Eurovision is not like the voice. It's like just him just saying, no, no, <laughs> it's not like this. Um, a couple other great things I quite liked. Um, the A lot of the seemingly throwaway jokes come full circle. It was a great bit at the beginning about whales, among a few other things, which become very relevant later. Um, just as a side note, I don't think this was intentional. It's actually, I think it's actually a mistake in the film. Sweden had seven people on stage. They should have been disqualified. And the film that is a stickler internally for the rule, Eurovision rules, Sweden, you should not have been there Okay, wrong. What, Come so what's on. the rule? I, I don't know. Uh, there there are several rules to Eurovision. You have to have an original song. It has to be three minutes long, and you can't have more than six people on stage. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Yeah. So, we, we, so there's obviously a great re- regeneration of material every year, which keeps it interesting, which keeps it engaging. Um, but yeah, you, you would have been disqualified. Like, there's some outrageous like, stuff you can barely parody. Like, you, there was a guy a couple of years ago who wanted to perform naked with wolves. So they, they, they looked it up. Yeah, I, I, I can't make this up. They looked it up and they found that while there was no prohibition, I can't remember, one, there was a rule against, I think it was performing naked, but there was no prohibition against performing with animals. So they had to change the rules. They could have gone all out with some crazy shit like this. And they didn't. But that, that's actually the thing. When I was looking at the musical numbers that are part of the soundtrack, they're just essentially quite, Blase pop ballads. They're not as no, Eurovision. They're typical. They're not as extravagant as like Eurovision. No, they're exactly like most of really? the Eurovision entries. Okay, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, most of the time Eurovision sounds like right, that. Then I'm look, wrong look, with that look, one. Like, typical, very specific pop sound. Yeah. Like, when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, I get it. Eurovision. When I heard most of these songs, I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly it. But yeah, it's, it's like catchy music. Um, Lion of Love. These are songs that would typically sound like Eurovision. Any songs. Eurovision performance, they would typically do well. I think. Look, there's a couple things to recognize. I think Eurovision is something you can barely parody. So having a slightly elevated tone is good. But at the same time, given we had no, for the Eurovision fans out there, given we had no real Eurovision this year, this was our Eurovision performance. And this was a novelty in and of itself. There's no real, nice for that. You, the reason you can't do parody of Eurovision is because there's no, there's nothing serious about it. It's already self-aware that it's trash and it's enjoyed by people who enjoy kitschy trash. I, I, I disagree slightly. I think Eurovision succeeds when it's a mix of self-awareness, but also self-awareness. I'm not saying there's no and sincerity. You can parody it. 
and I don't want to ruin the, the, what happens, but in the semi first semi-final performance, there's a massive piece of parody. It's a great piece of physical humor and it's, it's very funny. I'm not saying that there's no sincerity or no earnestness in Eurovision, but, I, but there's enough awareness of the silliness that it's not ripe subject for parody. You know, so there needs to be a degree of, of seriousness to attack, but Eurovision is already, you know, well aware of what it is. So it, it doesn't, there's no satisfaction in taking Eurovision down a peg. I think it would yeah. work better on that for that exact reason if Eurovision itself were divorced from this. It should have been, project. well, they, they could have done something we were talking about earlier, which is not replicate pretty much what Eurovision is and make something that's a, a extremely heightened version of the kitsch and um, absurdity yeah. of Eurovision. As it is, they've stayed too close to what it actually is. It kind of did feel like more like, you know, if you didn't know what Eurovision is like, here's what it could have been. I actually, no, I actually disagree. I think this lacks the grounding for people who aren't familiar with Eurovision, both in this contest itself, but in the rules. And to that, for a film that... They explain all the rules itself, well enough. You can follow it if you don't. Strangely, for... No, Eurovision. I, how the country... I, but, I, but for, for the novelty of the competition... Yeah. It is the explanation is a little bit absent, but moreover, for a film that got the licensing rights, they deviated from a lot of the rules in terms of how the judging works. I don't know why they would do that. And I'm sure it's I know it's a dramatic effect, but if you're gonna get these guys on board, you may as well just um, stick to, to how it works. If you're also gonna rely for dramatic effect and plot beats on how and why teams would be disqualified. I, I, like I said at the beginning, I think it's less we got the Eurovision people on board and more they got these Hollywood people on board. And then the Holly, oh, Hollywood person wants to change this bit for dramatic purpose. Okay. It doesn't matter ultimately if the movie serves the goal of getting people to watch Eurovision. But that's my, that's my cynical take anyway. On this, um, before we get into spoilers, just one of the great jokes of this that you blink and you miss it. The slogan, there's always a terrible Sydney Film Festival-esque generic slogan for Eurovision. And this one was this year in the movie was perfect harmony which is so funny great joke joke. so um yeah do you want to talk spoilers for eurovision yeah let's do it yeah we're doing no eurovision spoilers please i couldn't get up this morning i had to go to work etc yeah yeah i'm eurovision that's what i think of that's what everyone says to me every year don't don't spoil eurovision just Mm. uh, all right wrong with you so guys spoilers if you haven't seen eurovision Song okay, the fire and story of fire saga that name i said earlier on how lazy it is but it's i wondered if it was meant to be funny initially like the story of saga but now i've yeah. watched it i think they I literally think, call their band fire saga it, it is actually yeah no, like, yeah it, it's less impressive i was also thinking no, there must be a reason this title is so long there must be a joke about it <laughs> there still could be the joke of it's the story of something story but now that I've watched the film, I genuinely think it was just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon some executive was like, yeah, you know, if this Eurovision Song Contest movie does well on Netflix, maybe we can do Eurovision Song Contest, the story of blah, 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 and have a Eurovision Song Contest universe. I, the, I feel like the movie just feels like so lazy. The, the, weird, thing about the, title, the weird thing about the title is they call it the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, not, that's what it's called. Not, just not the Eurovision. discussion, by the way. Not yeah, yeah. Well, they had to. Yeah, they had to have know? that in the title because it's such a branded object. I know it's so Official weird. Official trademark Eurovision with the logo with the love heart and yeah. song contest TM. But they <laughs> need. Know. They do need to be successful in America. They do want that market. Clearly, but America, it's not culturally American in the slightest. No, it's, it's not. It's too progressive. And talking about. I that. don't think that. I don't think that's it at all. I just think 
I think it is. I think your vision actually is so distinct from what the, the US the platform is where a lot of things that happen, a lot of things that you get seen, it's actually going to scandalize a lot of the conservative American audiences. Not which all of America is part of the problem of this film as well, which is it is too conservative for. It'll do well in liberal Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I, I do feel so. I, I did think this film was actually a lot more conservative than it could have been. Because, yeah, because so, it's aimed at Americans. <laughs> no, the one good progressive plot point that I did like, now that we've gotten to spoilers, is spoilers. Dan Stevens and the, his actual arc. Okay, I, I, I'll hear you out, and then I will skillfully deconstruct everything you're saying and emerge victorious in our heated arguments. <laughs> Sure, go for it. We'll see. Uh, so, all no, right. I, I, I'm not. not the really. point about this, okay, spoiler territory, uh, is that there is this completely ridiculous, un, like forced, unnecessary romantic triangle situation between Alexander Lemtov, or you know, this very manufactured triangle between Rachel McAdams. The, the first of two, as I mentioned earlier, the lovers oh, get separated and then come back yeah, together. Yeah, and when they get separated, here it's the typical, you know, at the one of them sleep do, do but, they sleep with this at the party yeah. the villain but, plots a single beat and unfunny except for the year the icelandic broadcasting corporation guy yeah. sorry the minister who just couldn't they couldn't afford it anyway so it all hinges around the fact whether or not rachel mcadams does end up sleeping with lemtov or not but in a, in a great twist of whatever progressive fate or you know subverting our character expectations and that is gay that no, 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 not not just that. I think it was very interesting even before that that even though he's considered or he comes across as this completely macho alpha male character who seems right out of three sixty five days or this other completely horrific Netflix film, you know, it seems like he's straight out of that. But essentially, he's kind of a very sensitive guy who likes, you know, just sits there and just braids her hair for six hours and just has a conversation with her to like follow her heart. And, and he's, not he says, as predatory as, yeah. And he says a few times, no, no, I am gentleman. And it turns out he actually is a gentleman. He actually is. So this was actually, yeah, but he had ulterior my... motives for most of the film. I need to clarify. No, but they were, they were that, not at least, it was not like said. sexually. Predatory. I said, that, I said that he had ulterior motives yes, because yes. he was actively trying to stop them winning and he thought they were a threat. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole thing was like, I am going to br- split you up, right? Because you're the wild card and you could do it. You're the underdog. But, but the whole way through the movie, everyone at every opportunity says they're terrible. So why would Lemtov? Yeah. But even Lemtov was like, you know, you guys are coming last. Guys. You guys have practically no chance. Exactly. So why would he, yeah. I, I, I read that as he basically said, you guys have no chance, but I do want to see you as a singer succeed. But doesn't uh, it? No, him- no. I think he knew what a Eurovision audience were after. But it, it doesn't. I don't think so. It doesn't yeah, it make him the, the campiness would have like come, cut through. Ultra malicious and villainous. If he was trying to cut down these people who everyone thought were the underdogs, and who uh, us, you know, slammed at every opportunity. But but it was. And he's it, trying to ruin not just their Eurovision chances, but their personal <laughs> relationship. Does this guy that, deserve a redemption arc? No, no, but that's the thing. I, I still find it. It was funnier, or at least it's it's a different kind of villain than the usual macho uh, mean, alpha male, someone who says, oh, I can show you the yacht and like Wi-Fi in every room, which he does say, I have Wi-Fi in every hotel room, which is what can you give her? And I'm like, I can give her Wi-Fi in every room, which is quite it's, impressive. It's not, I think dis- about it too. it's not dissimilar to the lackluster villain arc in Blades of Glory. And they're just recycling old stuff. It's- the whole movie's recycling. We need it, but okay. they could have just had a whole film 
based on the idea that these guys are trying to overcome their own insecurities and strive to be the best at Eurovision. That would yeah. have worked. But yeah, the thing is, there, there, so there was too a subtle, moment, Glenn. Too subtle. There, Sorry, there yeah. was a moment in this film, especially because of how terrible the arc of Lars and Will Ferrell is, that I actually thought Rachel McAdams was probably better off with Lemtov because he was at least honest and true to her and wanted her to basically embrace her inner, you know, except he wanted that at the expense not only following participating in success so it was selfish but he was caring for her yeah which which is a different kind of villain you know at least this is not the kind of complexity i was expecting in a villain arc especially after seeing will ferrell's arc so i was like okay this is now love triangle again but at least i was like you know i was taken aback pleasantly Colin okay, Jay Jay a villain, a but he's not thing. really a villain. Like no one, there's no real villains in this movie. Yeah, which which is also nice. I was actually happy with that. The fact that you know we didn't go down this kind of like, oh, I'm gonna beat you up, and there was no airport scene or like, you know. So at least they had play around. Look at how much of a jerk he is. You can yeah, be we, with we, a nice we, guy who's who's uh, held your personal desires hostage to my Eurovision dream. But he, but even instead. then, there's so there's so many just unnecessary penis jokes. That was oh, the other dude. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like... It's just, it's a very broad, dumb kind of comedy and, and it's not actually that well-written. It just, well, yeah. it's not well-written at all. But the, the which is, which is funny because the only person who's insecure about his manhood is, is Will Ferrell's character, Lars, because he's just like... And has an extremely handsome father. down his package. I did like think a... it was funny when the, no, oh, my penis type thing, instead of, you know, the more obvious way for that joke to go about his patting his, make my ding-dong look big, patting out his outfit instead of just like awkward silence type comedy, they, um, when yeah. he's, Rachel McAdams asks what he's doing, they yeah. went for her going like, oh, should I do that? And like, yeah, classic, um, classic camel, you know, always in style. <laughs> like that, that was just unexpected and ridiculous yeah. enough to me that I chuckled. Um, yeah, but, she, but she can sell that stuff. He can't anymore. No, that's true. Okay, so one of the things I think we have to address in spoilers, yeah. as I uh, said earlier, um, for me, it was completely predictable. As soon as I saw, oh, they're not very good, I just, um, in the Eurovision um, qualifying thing, um, and it goes wrong for them. The moment that happened, even um, I thought, okay, everyone's about to die. It's it's just yeah. so, like, it's not, it's the kind of, like, awful cringe horror slash comedy kind of joke that a lot, like, the other guys... Yep. Tons of movies have gone for uh, in that template have gone for that kind of gag. But it's even so the, familiar that we all saw it coming. But then the execution of it was really oh like god. pudding, as I'm sure oh you god. guys will agree. Oh my god! I mean, especially when Will Ferrell is trying to pretend to be sad, and then they be like, "I am so sad, but also happy," and I'm just like, "That was that, that was, was so, so miscalculated." That because was also I thought, so bad. I thought they thought the audience, um, they thought that you would just go with the wackiness of. Ah, isn't it you know funny that all these people died and now they've got a chance and he, you know the back and forth about I'm sad but also I'm happy. But the problem is that he it seems like he's just pretending to be sad and he yeah, is he actually is. happy. He was, yeah. And at that point, he's not sympathetic as a character at all, any, no, no, at all no. anymore. No, it was like it was too awful and psychopathic. It's it's an absolutely absurd, too outrageous moment amid a film that is not nearly operating on that level of extremity. Um, it's something akin to it, this is a this is a less extreme example, but the final scene in Zoolander where the attempted assassination takes place, but which is a totally um, analogous moment. But they spent the entire time in Zoolander 
building up to that, which is why it works a little better. Here it just comes in as an aside in order to move the plot along, but it's not handled well. But to have him being that excited, about, I get the joke. I, it's not like I'm, you know, you could argue about whether I'm taking it too seriously. I'll argue no, because at later on, this movie asks us to take it seriously about some of its dramatic stuff. Yeah, we're not supposed to take it seriously when all these people just die, but which yeah, it's a I, I'm story fine in the with, Eurovision world. It's, it's, not even, it's not even the death. And world news. Mean, it, 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 it would okay, be that's the thing. It would be world news, and it would impact what, what, the. The plot yeah. in ways it, it, that it, it didn't play the competitions. Like, oh my god, I can't believe your friends died. I hope you do well in the competition. Yeah, Still you got a lot of media attention. Again, we're taking it a little too seriously, but the film does ask it us to be take it be sincere at so many and other serious countries. at certain points. But and because the, it, the it, thing it, is it's that it's so weird because like if it happened off screen, that's a different thing. But then the Katiana's hand, literally yeah, which is so grotesque, in front of that, and I was just like flaming severed hand. This is literally um, like this is not this is so unnecessary. It's so off. Basically, yeah. I'm not opposed to black comedy. I think a bunch of people suddenly dying in a twist of fate. But in, also, in she didn't deserve context, it. Like, there can was be nothing, hilarious, nothing set right? up that like her character deserved to be blown up that way. And like, basically, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't even, think you're saying she deserved to be at all. What, what, I, what I'm saying is, yeah, like, no, the movie wasn't saying she deserved to be. Um, Verite wasn't saying that. He was saying that she was not set up to be someone who. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Like she was not set up as like like she deserved that kind of an end. Yeah, exactly. She was set up as as a like beautiful person, right, and a great yeah. performer. Um, but it's just the way it's handled. Like I said before, for him to be that celebratory of it, and the movie doesn't care, and neither does the character. Um, like for me, it immediately was like this crosses the line of being a sympathetic human too strongly. Yeah. Like this guy is now pretty much his trash. I, I think he cares about nailed... nothing but Eurovision to the extent that he, yeah, he's I, not I traumatized you... when he like more by the shock of all those people just died. He just immediately you've nailed the problem with this movie that I have is the fact that I'm supposed to care about Will Ferrell's arc because he's a driving force of like winning the Eurovision Song Contest. It's my life's dream, and I really don't care that he achieves his dream because he's really a douche and it would be fine if the movie treated it all as parody but it gets yeah. serious towards the end yeah. we have all these the serious moments um especially and and let's not even forget the way he treats rachel mcadams character throughout he's, he's a complete douche to her as well oh and yeah he totally. He, he, he totally disregards yes she. it's has, not a good have, thing that they that they have kids oh, like she should get away yeah. from him it would be a huge regression in her yeah. development but it's I mean, worse because it, it, that's, of that's one thing Darryl. i think lemtov even selfishly makes her realize that you might be in an abusive relationship and you might do better and yeah. seek someone who respects you for who you are, which is, you know. He was right. It's worse because Will Ferrell, who just doesn't take any of this at all seriously and 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 it brings the, the Will Ferrell brand of comedy, which doesn't work as much in this particular story. Can you imagine how good it would have been if Dan Stevens had been in the Will Ferrell role and I don't know, like Jim Carrey had been in the role of Lemtop or someone like that? Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So much better. Be cool. Oh yeah. But no, I think it's the way the character is written. Like that character is just the, the script totally here off. is just yeah. like the bare minimum was acceptable. Could have cut the, the it is a two hour movie. movie. I don't mind a two hour movie, but if you're going to cut something, you could have cut a whole bit from this first act. It would have been the time to. Would have been eighty minutes long. Would be okay. I think the the um, the detail has been put in some of the Eurovision in jokes recreations. Yeah, so um, get to so, that, which are which slavish that. and good and affectionate. Yeah, but the but they don't even fit tonally with the rest of the film, as we've discussed earlier. And the rest of the film is lazy. Okay, so moving on uh, to what you were saying about the reaction of people at Eurovision. Yeah, I, I was thinking um, it would have made 
Lemtov's super devious if he'd been sabotaging them because he realized they were in with a chance because of his tra- their tragic backstory, wouldn't it? That but yeah, the way that sense. everyone, every, the way that it was like, oh, we're so sorry, Iceland was so awful, sorry everyone. Um, but I was like, it's played in the movie that as soon as they finish their performance, where they've just gotten back off stage after this calamity happens, um, that there's this hamster wheel bit. Now I can say it because spoilers was very very funny. The, the the falling it yeah it was good um but after that physical comedy i was worried for rachel mcadams the way that she slammed the ground i was like is she gonna be okay I know. like, like it's yeah. a, a woman being like pounded on uh, yeah. the ground like that I, for me it actually yeah it wasn't that funny. crossed too far yeah. that that yeah. it was like oh man i'm worried but anyway when they get up off the stage uh when they get up on the stage and they finish their song there's enough silence in the crowd the silence from the crowd before the applause breaks out is long so is very long so long that there's enough time for will ferrell to you know depart eurovision and and um leave the stage and push someone in a porta potty over i forgot about that (laughs) and then the crowd breaks out into applause and then later on Later on, when it comes to, to uh, for Iceland, why, why was that? And I thought maybe Lemtov orchestrated it because, like, he was sitting next to sounding <laughs> very surprised, like, "Oh my god, I wonder how this happened." And I was like, "Did he kind of like okay?" Something? Going back to the, the um, train of events I just outlined, the whole thing, all of that didn't land for me because all of that felt super false. I was expecting the moment they got it back on stage, there to be massive, spontaneous yeah. applause. It would have been is uh, you know it wouldn't have taken Will Ferrell time to get all the because way around the world and then onto a fishing boat too. with his dad before yeah. someone makes the incredibly obvious point, which would be in the audience's mind, that it's amazing that they got back on stage after the calamity. The audience would have loved yeah. it. Everybody would have burst out into applause immediately. Because the, the fact that they do, but they yeah, but, like, I the mean, performance was great. The yeah. performance was great. This one terrible thing happened, but then they get back up and finish the performance with oh, with cuts. Who wouldn't remember that right? and vote for them? It'd be the talking point of the entire competition. Exactly, it would have been a sensation. Iceland wouldn't have been like, oh, we're so sorry, this is awful. I, um, yeah, actually, that would have been the turning in. point. They could have got them up exactly. As and then Lemtov would it be like actually trying to scheme and break exactly. them apart, and that would make a lot more it, sense. The script because, needs another because draft. Like the context the story context for this, instead would have been okay. To give to yeah, give everyone some context, I'll just just finish that point quickly. There's been a couple of moments in Eurovision where there have been screw-ups of sorts. Um, England a few years back, the audio cut out. It was a major story. And it led characterized a lot of the discussion of the competition, so they let it continue again. There was the time where the Ukrainian prankster mooned um, during one of the performances. And this is the thing, but this is on such another extreme. This is totally different. This would make international news, irrespective of Eurovision, and it would endear so many of the crowd and perspective and new voters to these guys. No question. And that changes the dynamic of the story when, yeah, I, I, I find it hard to believe he would suddenly only find this out in the middle of a fishing boat in the middle of the Icelandic Sea. Okay, yeah, but look at the narrative. Look Look at the narrative. First of all, they came from... Okay, so that just illustrates application to this concept is because the fact that the audience do break out into applause, but uh, which obviously would happen, it does happen, but artificially, the period before they break out into applause is lengthened to justify Will Ferrell leaving the stadium and going back without really 
realizing that people actually liked them. Yeah. How contrived is that? But even right? then, the, the, so, like, so if, you, if, you, if you look at the script and the basic uh, crux of the film or the basic problem of the film, or at least what it's trying to address is the fact that Lars is someone, Will Ferrell's character, someone who basically screws up everything because he's basically a bumbling idiot, right? And that incurs tragedy. When it becomes, I mean, it would have been way more interesting. But in, in, in this case, yeah, in this case, that tragedy actually could have landed them the top spot and made them favorites. And, and, here's, and the yeah. doesn't play that here's out. Here's a different way they could have, um, it could have become that his whole life, he, it's been all about winning and suddenly he's the favorite and he needs to contest with his ego and realize it's not all about winning with regard to the Rachel McAdams character and giving her a chance, right? It, it, the plot turn it took uh, just felt, you know, really lazy and by the template. Yeah. So, but when, oh yeah, so Virat, Virat was so engaged last time and now he's just like, yep. Yeah. No, it's fine. No, oh, no, I, I was going to say- I, I, I have nothing else to say on your version. Okay, I, I was going to say, um, what, what you were saying earlier about how the, the deaths are never brought up in the rest of the film, it's, it reaches a point where it seems kind of cruel because Graham Norton keeps saying, oh, Iceland are terrible. Iceland apologized for how bad their performance was before the semifinal voting. Um, and various people involved make a comment about how bad they are and how much of a surprise it is to see underdogs Iceland going well. I think the narrative would be, holy shit, after coming out of a massive tragedy, yeah. Iceland then experience another uh, potentially Eurovision ruining moment, but pick themselves back up. What heroes, what survivors of adversity? Because that's the all thing. Our, all our number one, like everyone would have given number one position to Iceland. The, 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 thing no is like, the thing is like the film does try to play on that with Piers Brosnan giving him the speech that you didn't quit. But the way you get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's, there's three, a few points to that. I, I really like the moment where they stand up because it does speak to, this is really is what, this is pure Eurovision. This is what it's about. On the matter of everyone in Iceland, like hundreds of people in Iceland effectively dying, it reminds me of the moment in um, Mission Impossible 5 when the Austrian Prime Minister dies and they're brought up again or when the British airliner crashes in Die Hard 2 and no one gives a damn because we know the audience for this and they can't necessarily place the country on a map. So what does it matter? Um, but the, accurate. Yeah, on the matter of um, Graham Norton, I was going to really speak about him earlier. I know he's semi-Eurovision establishment, but he kind of strikes the right tone here, and I like that he was in it in the same way that I liked that um, Alexander Ryback and some of the other Eurovision winners were in it. He, he struck the right tone in his right, performance, for sure. But he strikes the right tone between uh, this mawkishness, but also this great just... I, he clearly has loves loves this as many others and not all others involved in the production clearly do so him being in it it was one of the better hearts it's something if you didn't watch your original you wouldn't know that it's not just graham norton randomly rocking up he has a very established role in being probably the leading world commentator on eurovision is that true actually well look every country has their own commentators miff warhurst has been doing it for a very long time for australia in terms of the commentators who get the most international recognition i'd say it's norton more because i think Norton's Especially commentary english language a lot of other places and it's english language and he's just bloody good he knows the competition inside out and he's very very funny the jabs he lands 
on in the movie are very, very true to life as to how you would otherwise commentate Eurovision. But I doubt that he would have jabbed Iceland like that, both because it's so obviously a beautiful triumph over adversity moment that for some reason no one seems to be recognizing within the context of this film and within the context of Eurovision, which for me was a big sell. And because, yeah, basically just that. And because of their backstory, like it's just like everything relating to that was tone deaf and, and didn't land. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Eurovision, we take it seriously. Do we take the movie seriously? Does the movie want us to take it seriously? At or times I... it does. Enough, exactly. Enough. But it picks and, and chooses at the moments where when I want it to, when I want something to be taken seriously, it won't be. And when I want something to be treated as a joke, the movie's going to take it seriously. In conclusion, not for me, Margaret. But very much for me, Chris. I am serious and don't call me Margaret. So that is <laughs> Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. It is now screened on Netflix. It is sure to add a few numbers to any Eurovision-themed party, including ones I and my friends will inevitably host in the years to come. Moving on to our next film, also a Netflix film. We're talking Athlete A, which premiered on Netflix all of the past few days. It is from filmmakers Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk. Now, we're getting a content warning going into this film. It contains uh, strong themes and discussions regarding, as this, our discussion tonight regarding sexual assault and aggravated sexual assault. It is about the very real scandal regarding USA gymnastics, um, the culture within the organization, the experiences of many athletes within it, historically and current, and the investigation into the conduct and trial of the doctor for USA Gymnastics, Larry Nasser. I obviously was familiar with the story given the extensive news coverage of the trial and the scandal when it first broke. And I learned a fair bit more about it watching this documentary, which I found quite procedural and faithful in its recount of events. It's very much a, for the uninitiated, those who are unfamiliar, this will give you a proper grounding in um, the history, uh, and not just what happened currently, but importantly, I think, and to the great credit of the documentary, the history of USA Gymnastics, which I certainly am not very familiar with, um, not being someone who follows the sport. Yeah, um, that for me was the thing that struck me most about this on a writing slash filmmaking level. I thought it was very well structured in how it gave you the, the important parts of the backstory about USA Gymnastics and without being too blunt about it, but to explain how a culture that tolerates abuse could develop. Like the, the information about the Eastern Bloc style of yeah. um, gymnast coaching and how that was imported wholesale into America and the way that they um, grew to having a marketing guy who just cares about the dollar and selling the brand most of all as their CEO. Um, I thought those were really interesting bits of information that say a lot and that um, they were placed in the film in such a way that just enough information is given, but it doesn't detract from the focus of the documentary to being a procedural story that's about listening to the stories of survivors. I, I think what this documentary did really well, and I think I'm clearly one of I think I pushed both Glenn and Chris to watch this one because I was just so hey, struck by it. And it was a good suggestion. Yeah. yeah. I think this documentary did really well was because it had to do so many things. It had to educate you on the subject matter for those who are not initiated. It had to be pretty detailed and yet not stay true to the two events, but also somehow give you a compelling narrative, which itself is a 
tricky tightrope to walk on. And not become ex- kind of like exploitation of yes. tragedy. Or, no, or no, not no. become like a talking heads kind of thing. I, I really like this uh, serial podcast style of unfolding because you're almost piecing the puzzles together as you go along, even mm. though you know the story. The way it's told, it's not told in a completely linear way. You are almost following multiple threads and you only see them come together. And to, it's more about the why rather than the what. Yes. So it, it did kind of still feel, feel like you're uncovering. So usually this is the problem with most uh, true crime narratives is the fact that they're just faithfully recounting and you don't really get the psychology behind uh, why something like this could have happened and how we could have let something like this occur under our noses and under our watch. This puts you in the picture really well. This, this documentary really does paint that picture and say that this is an institutional thing. And I think that for me was just, without it being you know, completely blown out of proportion and really selling the, in, in a very kind of grandiose way, it was still very understated, but I mm. think it still made its point. And that's why I think it was more powerful than being on the nose otherwise. I think this film could have gone very easily in the direction of focusing on the aspects of the story that people were most familiar with, the things that had been most covered and in some cases sensationalized by the press or the things that were um, some of the very most emotional aspects of this. I'm referring uh, predominantly to the coverage I most remember, and I think that was most broadly carried, which was the victim impact statements um, in during the tr- following the trial. This was covered to some extent in the movie. I'm glad it was, but more consequence and screen time was given to, I think what was, more important for us to hear what we otherwise would not have heard, which was the personal accounts of a few individuals, many chose not to be named or identify themselves, but who came forward and gave their accounts or events and spoke to um, just how this um, could and did occur and and made it broadly now just to how this does happen. Many other forms, many other arenas, many other forums, but also, um, and to this end spoke to the great fallacy of not, believing women Mm. um, and others when they raise claims of abuse. And there's obviously something that it was been very prevalent issue in light of me too and other, um, and this is public discussion around these matters on that. This is one of the themes that the film predominantly pursues. It talks about also trust and authority figures, um, the U.S. publics and the world's relationship with beloved institutions like the Olympics, the push for individual greatness as a child and by parents, mass commercialization. Um, There's all these things that the film covers. I like the balance generally struck. Any of these things could have been a documentary of itself. So by virtue of the format, it's only, it's less than two hours. It can't go into any of these as a detail it would like. To this end, I would gladly have watched this as a miniseries or a longer form documentary, but I'm glad they struck the balance between all these very important issues. I think they struck the balance really well. Like as a one hour, 45 minute film, I think it, it was very well paced. When I, I don't mean to talk about insensitivity when I talk about the potential for this thing to be boring. It's not that I don't find material horrifying um, or interesting, but in other Me Too related documentaries that I've seen, the as interesting and horrifying as the stories are, the structure simply isn't there. And beyond the repulsion we hear, we feel when we hear about these stories, that there wasn't much actual interest. Whereas this film, I think though it doesn't go into huge detail, had a clear perspective and was surgical in pointing out um, the layers of protection uh, and of irresponsibility going on 
to create and not not just irresponsibility and negligence, but intentional mis- obfuscation of truth. Yeah. You know, as well, it shows you the the macro level of how that goes on within the organization, as well as the personal level of how that impacts a person and why it resulted in it. In some cases, people taking a long time for this to come out without overly dwelling on any of these points. Watching yeah, this so- kind of reminded me that you know all the other kind of films of this of this type, which uh, granted they're more feature, like something like Spotlight or whatever. And I was wondering when you're reporting on such sensitive matters, what I found this film or documentary film, whatever you want to call it, to do well uh, was the fact that I think where it didn't dramatize things when it didn't need to. And sometimes I think that can be an understated art. Like it wasn't striving for drama. There was a lot of good judgment it. and taste yes. in this production film. Which, <laughs> which, and which it kind needed, of had a better impact. You know, yeah. I, and I feel like sometimes when you're going for that aha moment, you know, which this documentary could have easily gone for because it could have easily laid the blame on squarely on certain individuals or certain institutions. It doesn't go for easy solutions. It kind of trusts the judgment of the viewer in saying that you were intelligent enough to figure things out. And so I was just surprised that something like this could be on Netflix because it... No, it's very, very in line with Netflix. They invest a lot in documentaries, especially in stories like this that were are shocking and have a high amount of public. But it's, it's, it's still but this isn't one of the better ones. Than, than a dramatic kind of revelation story, which... Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, if you're going expecting that, that kind of thing, it's like that everyone the or whatever, it's not like that. Or sees it scroll up on Netflix is to some extent familiar with the story and has heard of it. It knows that. It expects this is a household story. Everyone's aware, and it's even more even more prevalent are uh, is awareness of the issues raised more broadly by the film. I do think it was handled sensitively and um, classily. Give the film great credit for that. I'd, I'd recommend the film. I think oh, definitely. For, for a subject matter, you. which we all knew about, I think it still managed to give me something new to take away. It from still from, manages which is, which is to fascinating. make you angry again by putting <laughs> things into clarity and perspective. Yeah. Which yeah. is... It does make you angry. It does make you angry. We, and, and that's another thing. This is not... But it's not it's, trying to stir what, you what up. About, what I'm about to say is not a criticism at all or a praise. It's just an observation. It's a very intense and aggravating watch because... It makes you riled up. It's I feel horrified and angry mm. watching this occur, and um, that's not unexpected given the subject matter. But, but it's not sensationalism. It's, it's not, not like and you, and I think, you I think must rile the audience up. It's like exactly. it wants you to be justifiably angry at structural abuse. Like how can some? How can a structure or you know an institution let this happen? And how can basically institutions protect individuals? by virtue of the fact that but it, it pro- tries to provide you with the reasons why that happened as opposed yeah. to simply saying it happened and delving into the suffering and like, i felt like that about i think it was called untouchable yeah. that yeah. film gave us a lot of victim stories um but which were horrifying but structurally it after giving you the backstory it never delved into the really interesting part of the backstory which is how was this possible who made it happen why you know this film very much to its credit did yeah and i think importantly it recognizes that so much of this public perception of the story and a part of the horror people feel is tied to the iconography of not just the u.s olympics and elitism but specifically this sport and that so many people in it are everyone knows are um young and aspirational and that is more jarring still the film was very aware of this and without sensationalizing yeah it, it I, it in addressing the history of 
the sport and how America has and still views it and the world more generally. I thought that, yeah, there was great subtlety shown there and the way that it sort of hinted towards that without making it a detour from its surgical kind of procedural approach. Put the ideas were there, but they were never smashing you over the head. About you know, I think they use the phrase in this like the, a very young aesthetic that they developed in their branding, in the imagery of, of the Olympics. That is Athlete A. It is screening now on Netflix. We recommend you seek it out. We've raised a lot of uh, very confronting issues in this discussion, and if you are and if you want to talk about someone or any of these issues or any of the things raised uh, by our talk or within the documentary athlete a we do encourage you to reach out there's an amazing helpline a number of amazing services in australia um, one of which is 100 respect um, their number is 100 respect that's 1-800-737-732 that's 1-800-737-732 so both the films that we have discussed tonight are screened on netflix uh, we'll be back next week um, let us know what you want us to discuss whether it's a new film screening obviously there's going to be new things potentially coming out in cinemas which potentially I'm referring to Tenet, of course, and other fair. The and Assistant, by the way, is... Yeah, actually, on, Chris, I managed, I managed to catch it. Yeah, yeah, and it's, assistant. it's also now on all, all yeah. um, VOD platforms, basically, iTunes, etc. And it'll be in cinemas when they open, so the, the choice is yours. What's the first thing everyone's going to... I know you're a little bit going, but I see the French Film Festival. Chris, what's the first thing you want to watch? I want to go to the Fellini retrospective at the Ritz. Ooh. Yeah, apparently it's, um, there's... I don't need to see The White Shake again, so I'll skip the first week, but... Um, I want to see I Get Alone again. It. Yeah, they're not showing that as part of the retrospective, I don't Damn think. That, that one's one of my absolute favorites. Apparently it was Stanley Kubrick's favorite film for a period, which ah. is one of those surprising things, you know, when, when you find out somebody has very different taste to what you, you know, the, the films they create. But it happens surprisingly often. Terrence Malick loves Zoolander. Yeah. Like, uh, Michael like, Bay is a huge Coen Brothers fan. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'd love to see, um, what's the one, the great Roman epic he makes? Not Dolce Vita, the one. Uh, Satyricon? Uh, Satyricon, that's it. Uh, I think they are programming Satyricon, yeah. Good, good. Let's see that. Um, I've seen, I saw it in the half a couple of years ago. I'll give that one a... Yes, but I said it last time, but I, I wish they had um, Ivadaloni and uh, Knights of Kiberia. Th- those two, I would be really like jumping at the bit to get infected with COVID nineteen. For no, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, but um, I don't believe that it's a significant risk there. But personally, or else I wouldn't be doing that. But I respect. I wouldn't be attending. But I respect the feeling of anyone who does feel it's a risk. Yeah. I miss Randwick. It's been yeah. three months since I've, three and a half months since I've been there. More yeah, maybe. I, I do want to, but you know, it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll come around as well. There's good reasons to have hesitation. It's, it's not coming around. It's when, well. when people are comfortable. Fair exactly. Enough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's why I find the whole um, Christopher Nolan gung ho. I must release Tenet as soon as possible thing. I, I, I'm relying on rumors and hearsay, right? But what we're hearing is that Warner Brothers would just push the film later, but Christopher Nolan wants the movie to be the first film to reopen and is pushing for a sooner you know theaters and is pushing for a sooner rather than later release it strikes me as kind of distasteful you know like i must bring people into yeah. cinemas but also and like the situation so in australian context than say Definitely, an american context. yes so, yeah the u.s I, I want is to be far, clear there. far in, worse that's right i would not i say that I, i'll happily go to the ritz to see the fellini films if this were the u.s i would not be yeah no, i would just not feel comfortable a, right now not uh, at all 
a high of 45,000 cases a day. Insane. Which is, I can't even imagine that number. Yeah. I mean, we don't, mortality or death rate is a separate thing altogether, just infection. It it just means it's it's this year's flu in terms of contagion. Just everyone's getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So... We do hope cinemas will reopen in the U.S. because when it's safe, it, it, it's, a, it's a signal that things are getting better in the U.S. But it, more generally, but also, um, if the U.S. don't open cinemas, then a lot of films just aren't going to come out. Hey, well, Fast and Furious, um, they, it was rescheduled for a year, but that's, and they look very smart now for yeah. doing such a huge delay. But we don't hope that America sees theater reopenings before it's ready. There's a lot of concern that Florida Disney World is still set to reopen very soon. I mean, that's ridiculous. But just then, I mean, looking not that far ahead with the U.S. presidential elections coming, I'm not sure how many people... July 4 is coming. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of big vector events coming ...vote in actual voting booths. I don't know. I'm not sure how many people will turn out. Well, I think that's why Trump, to get political, I think that's why Trump has been trying to spread FUD about uh, mail-in ballots. He doesn't want people who are afraid of coronavirus, more likely to be Democrats, to be able to vote if you start um, spreading doubt and fear about whether we should accept the mail result. Yeah, well, if there's no testing, there's no COVID, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's just to be very clear, that's not our position. I do, I do think, I do believe Trump when he says, I know it's clear. Yeah, I do believe Trump when he says he was joking there, but I also think, man, what a thing to joke about. (laughs) I think it's half. It's a half joke. It, it was a half joke. I think he yeah, genuinely was, thinks that, but also yeah. There's fifty percent. Like it depends on the day. I think there, there might be a day that he actually believes it, and there might be days like, oh, I'm just joking. Don't joke when more than a hundred thousand citizens are dead. Exactly. It's just but that's the it thing, just right? shows where his mind Trump, is at about this. That he, he's but using Trump it has completely changed what is acceptable and not acceptable coming from president's office it's, in all public discourse, yeah, and he's also it, completely changed what is acceptable and unacceptable in our relationship with the truth. It's becoming way harder, I think, now to convince people that anything reported in the media is true, ever. Speaking of because Trump, of that, such a such a movement to undermine trust in what were previously accepted as facts. This isn't to say there should never be criticism of the media or there aren't yeah. structural problems with the media, but I don't think Trump is going after the media for that reason. I think he just wants an environment where what's true doesn't there's matter. There's distrust. Speaking yeah. of film, turning it back to film, there's the new Brendan Gleeson film that they're not releasing in time for the election where he plays Trump. I want to see that. Why not release it before November? I don't. Brendan Gleeson playing Trump sounds hilarious. It sounds way better than Alec Baldwin playing Trump. Though that wasn't bad. It, it was pretty bad. I, well, it was such a, it was such a, it lacked grab. It lacked acknowledgement of the seriousness. I think. I think people at that stage thought if we treat Trump like he's just a joke, this whole thing's just going to go away. People will laugh about it and won't take him seriously. It wasn't a very good impression. The great dictator, you know. Yeah, no, it wasn't a great impression. Agreed. Um, but I, yeah, so a lot is happening. A lot so. is happening. But we, we'll, be, we'll be covering the film fallout from this. Yeah. <laughs> we were taking a, a brief divergence away from film. Yeah, we'll we'll continue to be obsessed with record, For the record, I think Charlie Chaplin, I'd love to talk about the Great Dictator in the episode. I think Charlie Chaplin did reckon with the seriousness of the Nazis more implicitly in in that film. 
Yeah, he did. And, Should we do it? But he also said that he would not have even gone as comedic as he did had he realized the extent of the atrocities. Yes. Yeah. Should we do a Chaplin retrospective sometime? It, it's that just would be, be beautiful. It, that would be I, that would be a great subject. Yeah. I'd love to talk about um, City Lights and Modern Times. City Lights, Modern Times, the two best, right? Yeah. I'd say so. I like the Gold Rush. I think Modern Times is better than the Gold Rush. The Great Dictator, I, I think, seen, is probably I haven't seen many of them for the best a film. Long time. Um, hmm. Growing up, we used to watch uh, a lot of the silent ones. I can't name any of them, but I just they were always on the living flex room. Right have here. any of you guys seen Limelight? Nope. Well, that could be, if we did a Chaplin retrospective, we could have yeah. a moment of we all are seeing this film fresh. People say that's yeah. his last masterpiece, 1953, no, I think. The, the thing is like... Uh, even though I've seen it, but it's it's such a long time ago that I, I probably don't remember many scenes in mm. even, even like modern times City Lights as well. I, I loosely remember and they'll come back as I watch them, but I think it's almost like watching them fresh mm-hmm. now with like grown up sensibility. Yeah. Mm. Um, because that, that is part of the problem because even though Chaplin was great, like his comedic persona did overshadow my perception of him when I viewed these films and it's only later that I realized that, you know, yeah, he's an amazing film. director. Yeah, yeah. That too. <laughs> a couple of things about Chaplin or three things about Chaplin. First of all, it's, it's worth going up and looking up the young pictures of him. As Sands, his typical tramp kid. He does look a bit like Robert Downey Jr. Who later played him in the film. I liked that his legacy and is it alive in a very modern respect. His granddaughter um, was obviously a very prominent actress now. And oh, who's, who's that? Una Champlin from Game of Thrones and else. Oh, uh, Rob. She played Rob Stark's wife. And oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh. with, with Chaplin, it was it was this reference in a fair few films recently. The um the, the catcher and the catcher in the rye of uh, J.D. Salinger, film biopic, but Rebel in the Rye. Yeah, but I forgot. It was a little late. I was going. I was going to say. Um, Chaplin, he, I, I know this anecdote gets told a lot and dear listener, you probably heard it, but I, I do still love the whole, he entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition and came third. Third or fourth? I heard he came third. And that's not I'm, I'm sure legend has changed over time as regards <laughs> this. Is there actually truth to that or is it just a really funny story? I've, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it. Yeah, oh, I've that, heard it. Yeah. yeah. I wonder. I thought, I thought it was true. If um, it's, um, Probably, if it's true, it's because the aged person in real life might let, look less like the perfect image of them in their most iconic role. Mm. And then there are all these Buster Keaton fanboys who are just like, you know, but Buster Keaton did it first. Uh, Buster Keaton Buster, did something very different. Buster Keaton is incredible. Buster Keaton's gags and his direction of said gags is better. Chaplin went for a more sentimental approach and um chaplin's movies can make you cry in a way that buster keaton's movies aren't going to yeah. and Keaton, it's, it's different. Different. he begins physical mastery but also his coordination of quite dangerous stunts and technical proficiency at a time when he's, a lot of filmmakers still don't do stuff like this this was in the 1910s he's bloody amazing um the general and is keaton was worth, the, like the it, general it's worth watching to see to what extent it still influences movies today the general, I think, is the prototype for a lot of Steven Spielberg's action scenes. That whole approach where everything's moving and there's the, the choreography between platforms on the train and this is happening over here and this later on this intersects is, with this. It's yeah. so ridiculously ahead of its time. It was another this, yeah. 60, 70 years before films 
this is a debate like I'd love to have like big slapstick action scenes that way. I'd go back and watch General. Yeah, Keaton and and Chaplin both. Yeah, retrospectives would be great. I think they're they're both amazing artists, and we don't need to pit them against each other. As I don't know that way. Talk about Keaton in the context of Sunset Boulevard a little while ago. He was in that, right? Yeah, he was brief cameo. Yeah. Have you ever heard him speak? Plus Keaton. Uh, no, I haven't. I don't think. I have. He has. He has a just. Most most movie stars have a very emphatic or very distinct voice. He's incredibly normal sounding. Interesting. <laughs> you'd want. I feel like with his sort of very pretty look, you'd want him to have this almost effeminate voice. You know, like he has such such a soft face. You'd want, and he, he, he's so flexible and graceful. I would imagine him having a, a very kind of like measured soft voice. It sounds kind of like there's the, it's, this is an exaggerated version thereof, but the episode of the Simpsons uh, with the film festival and who was saying Bjorn, the guy's like, it was him, get him fellas. Right. The less exaggerated version of that. I think also 30s recording equipment, and 20s and such tends to give people a different tone of voice. Oh, I, I listened to an interview for him a little bit later in life. but Okay, fair enough. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so, now, these would be great, actually, you know, because I, I was loving our old school. Oh, me too. Direct retrospectives. You know, I had a, um, I, I told you this you uh, a few weeks ago, not recording, but we had someone suggest we go deep into like 60s experimental stuff. And um, mm. a few directors were mentioned, Stan Brackage being one of them. I thought that sounds awesome, but also like, uh, I don't know how up for it you guys would be. That's starting to go outside again, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, now you want me to watch deep experimental, purely abstract shapes on screen. (laughs) I don't know, man. We'll see about that. No, I'd be up for it, but it would be a big change of pace for our show. But yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's something to consider. We should definitely, uh, schedule in Charlie Chaplin to some yeah, point. Yeah, let's start with Chaplin. Idea. Oh, Chaplin and uh, progress from there. But do <laughs> if you do want to find out one particular star or um, any classic star of the Hollywood age, let us, or other film industries, let us know what you want us to fight about. And twitter.com slash film fight club AU, facebook.com slash film fight club. And I'll admit, we've been slack with edit with updating that. I will endeavor as my homework that we will keep those pages updated in the next week. You can hold me to it till next episode, everyone. Woo-hoo. Yes. yes. And, and no, please, because, but if you do suggest fights over social media, we do listen and actually. Yeah. If we, we, we do receive anything that comes there and we have. In fact, I think, I think some actually. of our fights have been because That's right. directly through social media. That's right. So that. even if it looks like it's abandoned, I promise there's someone on the other end. <laughs> Yeah, we're there. Yeah. It's not a complete great yeah. us. Yeah. It's, well, it's, us. it's not some, some Anybody strange out um, fraud going on, some impersonation. We, yeah. we, we, uh, no, it's not. It is us. It's us. It so us. have, yeah, sleep well or, um, or enjoy, enjoy the, the rest of your whenever, day. Whenever, wherever you are. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. Talk movies and yeah. yeah, subscribe and stay safe. Enjoy. If you are going to the cinemas, enjoy cinemas, but irrespectively, Enjoy movies. Mm, yes. mm. And yeah, watch good movies and bad movies, any movie. Mostly movies. good movies though. Like yeah, ones we recommend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but just generally, I feel like, you know, we're at that stage and point in, you know, this whole year. We're ready to enjoy movies again. For yeah. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it, With people. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I miss the crowd reaction. I would love to have sat in a cinema and watched this Eurovision movie with a bunch of Eurovision fans. Well, I'm not, not quite sure, actually. I think I'm, I'm not at that level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't understand Eurovision, Chris. No, you don't get it. You just don't get it. Um, Manning Bar, before Manning Bar went, is no longer Manning Bar. Oh, wait, what? Annual, yeah, they aren't doing what gigs anymore. Then no, they they're still doing gigs. Oh, I'm pretty sure they're just not doing lunchtime activities. God. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Which it's means like, it's not I don't know. You see, however, the Eurovision screening every year, and it was wonderful and full of um, yeah. My people. understanding, my understanding, right, is that Manning really declined, um, partly because of a new bar that they opened at UCID, which they put a lot more focus on. And it d- didn't never develop to the same kind of social gathering and activity side that Manning had. Um, oh. And as a result, that's kind of just died off from the university. Seems like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the last bastion of UCID culture. Uh, is everything changed after me? The jacaranda tree is no longer the same. Manning's bar, bar is no longer there? the same. Mm. Is Herman's still there? Herman's, Herman's is still there, but Herman's, Herman's was there. never Herman, popular. Herman's is the cheap bar. That's where the most people trivia. go to have. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> I, I went there for a West Wing trivia night. It was great. <laughs> Do more West Wing trivia nights, Herman, so I'll come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Josiah Bartlett out. Wait, it, hold on. Is, isn't it that Manning's isn't open at lunchtimes at all anymore? Is, have they gone that thought, far? Yeah, yeah really? that's insane. Yeah. That was like, oh my God. I miss the schnitties. They had great schnitties. Just okay. Herman's was the place to be at lunchtime. Yes, yeah, but Manning was the place to be when you go to. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I said I said totally the wrong thing. The, the, the other Manning way, yeah, was the yes, place to be at lunchtime. Yes. Blood, Herman's, blood, you might drop by on the way home. Yeah, blood, yeah, blood, blood, your, had, blood your lectures. And, Manning and was great at Manning. any hour, but it, yeah. it was the lunchtime, place for the big lunchtime, big dick energy, yeah. drinks and yeah. talks. <laughs> oh man, and, and theater sports. And theater sports, exactly. Yeah, theater sports, exactly. The Chaser really was good. partly born out of Manning Theater Sports. Yeah, you know? yeah. Did you know I did uh, arts review? Like I no. was actually part of the arts. Oh, review. nice. I, I did write sketches. They're still up on YouTube. Right. Which I will never share with anyone. <laughs> you might have yeah. given away enough for the detectives out there. Yeah. yeah. Someone, we'll someone find this and we'll review it next week. <laughs> they don't know which year I was part of it. Uh, Virat went to UC the University between the years of, we'll find out. <laughs> so, yeah. good night. Good night. Good luck. Yes. Do you want to say something, Virat? I was just going to say the thing about like something, add something for the radio, tell people where to find the podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. So if you. So if you want to hear our extended discussion of Eurovision, including spoilers, as well as of Athlete A, and we'll cut that part if we don't reference Athlete A uh, beyond what's in the episode, you can find our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Music, anywhere that good podcasts are found, basically. um, Just look up Film Fight Club. Yep. Good night, everyone. Goodbye. 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 Keep watching movies. Keep fighting. I haven't been watching enough in that movies. order. Yeah, I haven't been watching enough movies. I should start doing that. It, it movies are good. Movies That's are my good. message that, that, for the world. Movies are good. In it's... my experience, watching more movies makes me happier. Uh, so okay. if like it will have happy. that, yeah, I like being happy. If it has that impact on you, all right, guys, uh, treat yourself. I'll, I'll be, I'll be, go out I'll and watch happy. more movies. <laughs> yeah, I'll be having a proper housewarming, and we'll be having a movie watching night. Here's how this is gonna play out. Okay, you, you're telling everyone on the radio. Great, everyone, go to Virat's house party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm keen. I'm, I'm very keen, and uh, 
that's all there is to say. I think. <laughs> say. Good night. We'll, we'll sign off proper. You can see the timer going down in the podcast. Yeah. Or if you're listening on the radio, it's probably very early. Sonic Assassin's about to come on any moment. Oh, but we sometimes we program this long version. If there's an extended episode, I try to program it for midnight, the night that while no one's feeling the midnight shift to a CR during lockdown, just in case you weren't aware, um, our long episodes are airing. So if you find yourself driving late at night or awake and can't sleep and you're looking for something to do and you like our show. You're sick of scrolling through Stan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we are. Listen to our dulcet tones, our sultry <laughs> yeah. voices, and our radio tunes until the early morning hours. And and enjoy and just go look up the best Eurovision clips from the years past. You you will not be disappointed. Yes, because if, you'll roar like a lion. If you're that Eurovision inclined, which some of us clearly are. Good night. Bye.